Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with two-time world champion Johnny Damon. Johnny Damon! you got the sweetest ass in the league! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to Boone Podcast. Today in the program, we've got a two-time World Series champion, 18-year Major League veteran. He ended up with over 2,700 hits for his career. He's appeared in Celebrity Apprentice, Dancing with the Stars, and Below Deck. I just I just found that out recently. Uh, he started his career in Kansas City, where he played for none other than my pops, Bob Boone. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Damon. Johnny, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me, man. I always admired your bat flips, and uh, they were <laughs> definitely one of a kind. You just happen to have too many of them against my teams. So uh, <laughs> I didn't like it for that, but I uh, commend you for your talents for sure. And what about now? Hey, we got everybody. It Bat flips, not a big deal anymore. Yeah, It seems like everybody's got one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you were waiting to get plunked a few times, but nowadays uh, that doesn't take place anymore. But uh, you definitely had a really nice one and a really nice career. Oh, thanks, Johnny. All right, before we get to the real stuff, I, I want to talk about Celebrity Apprentice, and I want to talk about okay. Dancing with the Stars. First of all, you play, you play a, you have an awesome career. You finish, we, you know, we've all lived it. We finish our, our playing days. We're home. We're bored. We're playing golf. How did you decide you were going to go on the Celebrity Apprentice and Dancing with the Stars? And how did you go about it? Or did they come to you? <laughs> yeah, well, they actually came to me. And I did a golf show with President Trump back in the day. It was Derek Lowe and I. Uh, representing Boston and David Wright and Donald Trump representing New York. And obviously, I mean, they won, but he was amazing with his putter that day. So that was around 2006. And so fast forward years later, he asked me to go on to Liberty Apprentice and I happily obliged and, uh, tried it out and the tv world is very difficult i must say it's uh, a lot of hurry up and wait and it was a great experience for sure and i was glad i was able to do it now when you went on dancing with the star i couldn't like i could do celebrity apprentice i i think where i could do like an easy uh show where, where I think would be easy going in, but dancing with the stars, Johnny, I don't know. I can't <laughs> sing. I can't dance. I've got two left feet. Could you dance a little <laughs> bit going into it? Or were you just thinking, yeah, this will be fun. I'll go screw around and see what happens. You know, I thought it would be fun. I mean, I know how to do the moonwalk. That's about <laughs> it with my dancing. And normally it's 10 weeks and my friends, from the past, like Joey Fatone did it. It was 10 weeks. They were doing a four-week show, and I said, what the heck? Why, why don't I try it out? And I absolutely enjoyed it. You know, unfortunately, that first week, 
they got me out and I actually went to see NSYNC get their star on Hollywood Boulevard and people in California still did not see the show. So that was the interesting thing. I got booted off, but of course they're going to root for Kareem. I mean, he's an absolute legend champion and big time in Los Angeles. So I had a great time and glad that I was able to uh, do my knee sliding Eddie Van Halen for two shows. So I enjoyed that for sure. Very cool. All right. So as a kid, you ran track, you're a football player, obviously a baseball player. Uh, but before that all happened, you, you had a pretty interesting childhood or, or at least real young childhood. You were born at Fort Riley in Kansas. Uh, you're kind of what they would call an army brat. So tell me about Johnny Damon as a kid, uh, just growing up. Yeah, Johnny Damon as a kid, born in Fort Riley, Kansas, about a month into it. My father got um, sent to Okinawa, Japan, and lived there until we were, or until I was four. And then we got sent over to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and my dad hit his 20 years, and it was time to retire for him. My mom wanted to be close to Mickey Mouse, so it was either going to be Anaheim or Orlando, and Orlando has a really strong Thai community. My mother is from Thailand, and they also had a Navy base back in the day, so it um, it was a no-brainer for my family, so we moved to Orlando, Florida, and I've been here since 1980. Did uh, growing up through through high school because you're still in Windermere and and people listen to the Boone podcast uh, during my playing days. Johnny lived. We lived. We were kind of neighbors. We lived across the street from each other. You had been there your whole life. I was going there in the off season uh, to get out of wherever I was playing at the time, Cincinnati winter or or Seattle winter. But uh, it, we were kind of neighbors. You grew up there though. Uh, Dr. Phillips area. You're a football player in a track. Was it always uh, growing up? Were you always wanting to be a baseball player or, or did other sports enter in or were other sports even an option for you when you got into your high school years? Well, I always wanted to be a baseball player. I mean, growing up and just watching the game and just dissecting it, I always had a love for baseball. I played some football because, you know, it was a cool thing. And, you know, Warren Sapp ended that for me very quickly when he was an All-American tight end, came across the middle, kind of rang my bell, and I was the one doing the tackling. I was like, okay, football, you know, I can I can leave it. And also thought about running some track, but then again, a guy of my frame, and, you know, there's a lot of fast guys in the world. and. You know, soccer, there was no place to go at the time, but baseball was my absolute love. I could play with the older kids in the neighborhood, and it was just a fun time. I mean, we would play tennis, baseball, you know, have tennis rackets and tennis balls so we didn't break windows in the neighborhood. Um, you know, playground piece was first base, Um the manhole was second base, a crack on the sidewalk was third base, and a crack 
you know, on the street was home base. So growing up, great area. I actually didn't grow up in the Dr. Phillips area. I grew up on the south side of Orlando, and it was a, a great childhood. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And, you know, I knew the kids were bragging about how much fun they had on the weekend and enjoying the lakes in Windermere and surrounding areas. So I knew if I ever made it, I was going to uh, move to this area. And it's been, you know, absolutely amazing. Very cool. So in 92, uh, you're the 35th pick. Uh, You're picked by the Kansas City Royals. And I want to know, well, you obviously you end up signing, but did you have, was college on your radar? Did you, did you have college plans if the draft didn't work out the way you wanted it to, or were you just basically saying, I'm going to sign professionally? I definitely had some college on my mind. I signed with the university of Florida and was ready to go, but I also knew I was ready for the next level. I understood a lot could happen in college. Um, You know, you have to study a lot harder than you had to study in high school. Um, There's a lot of commitments. My parents are at home an hour and a half away working a number of jobs. And I knew that if I signed, they could cut back I'm working. I can take care of them some. And the draft didn't work out in my favor because I struggled my senior year. I mean, everything I hit, found the glove and then pressure mounted and stuff happens. But I was ready to pick myself up and get after it and turn pro. And the first year, the Gulf Coast Royals, we won a championship. I won the MVP. And I was on my way to the next level. And I was fortunate to win two MVPs in the minor leagues, two championships. And, you know, that's why the the big leagues were calling me by the time I would have been a junior in college. 21 years yep. old, I was called up to the big leagues. And, wow, could never imagine that. And it was an absolute dream. No, it's pretty cool because, you know, I, I think back to my eight, when I was 18 years old, I got drafted in the 28th round. I thought I was the greatest player on earth. Uh, for me, college was a good, good choice for me looking back, but, but not for everybody. You know, it's not, I look at the high school players today. There's only a very, there's only very few high school players I see and say they're ready for professional baseball. Because not only is it a physicality thing, but it's it's a mental thing as well. I don't think every 18-year-old's ready for it. Uh, and, and I think college can do a lot of people good. Obviously, in your case, it didn't. Next thing you know, you're in the big leagues in three years. You know, at the age of 21, especially uh, in the 90s, where that wasn't very prevalent. Today, you see a lot of big leaguers, it seems like they're rushing kids to the big leagues a little earlier in 2021. Uh, That being said, man, there's a lot of young talent out there when we're talking about Acuna and, uh, you know, Tatis and Soto. And man, it seems like, you know, it seems like back in those, in the nineties, it's like Griffey got to the big leagues when he was 19 and it was like unbelievable. That's Griffey. It seems like it's a little more common now to get there at a young age, but 21, 
uh, like you said, you would have been a junior at college. And, and I look at a lot of juniors in college. They still need a lot of some seasoning before that professional. But you, you went through it pretty quick. You make your debut in, in 95. And this is what's my most interesting part when I was preparing for this show today uh, was, yeah, Johnny came up and he's playing for my dad. Now, <laughs> I know what it's like having my dad as a dad what's it like having bob boone as a skipper you know your dad was fantastic obviously i'm a young kid who's coming up and he's being told by front office we got to play this kid he's having a great year and your dad had to release some very popular veterans you know the likes of the vince coleman's um Craig James, you know, and here we are walking up to the big leagues going, I, I've never had a big league camp. These guys are old enough to be my dad. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm here and sent a filter. And your dad is such a nice guy. And I understand the business side of it a lot more now, obviously. But as a young kid, you're like, okay, I'm going to play every day versus righties and lefties, and center field is mine. And unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff you have to learn, and your dad definitely taught me a lot of that. I had to make sure I prepared to play every single day because if I had a bad game, I wasn't going to be in the lineup the next day. And, you know, I started off really strong and I think the length of the season finally got to me because I had a long spring training um, Major League Baseball was on strike so six weeks of that playing all those games a double A season going to the big league so I'm about at 200 games now towards the end and you know it finally caught up to me you know and your dad was great through the whole process and you know, our payroll was very low, so your dad didn't have a lot to work with as well. And that's a good reason why I probably got called up when I was 21 and never looked back going to uh, back to the minor league. Oh, now I think about it. Was Bull your hitting coach, Greg Lazinski? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we we had him in the a podcast beauty. a couple of weeks ago. What was it like? Because I grew up with Bull, okay, because dad and Bull were yeah. – they were roommates in the minor leagues when I was just born. So I actually lived with him. And then their years through the, you know, the Phillies organization and pretty much all of the seventies, you know, was my childhood. Uh, so bull was kind of like a second dad to me. And I remember those day, those years because bull and dad would come down to spring training and, you know, we'd spend some time together. They'd get there early and we'd play golf. And, and, and it just dawned on me right now that, yeah, Bull was the <laughs> was the hitting coach. He's he's a piece of work and, and he's a lot of fun. Oh, he was the absolute best. He was like, swing the bat. You don't need to hit ground balls. Let's hit line drives. And if you hit it good enough, it's going over the fence. You're strong enough. Let's go. Come on. You don't have to take too many swings. If you're ready, you're ready. And it was a great experience, man. And, you know, his son and I got drafted the same year. So we talked about our experiences. And, um, yeah, 
you know, being around great managers and coaches, I mean, that's one thing that I will always cherish. I got lucky. And fortunately for me, um, I was able to succeed. And um, you, you were talking about these kids, like the talent level that's out there and how how you weren't ready. Um, you had to go to college. Well, I'm sure that experience of being around Bull and your dad at the ballpark as a kid, your dad also knew he needs a couple more years of growing up and he's going to um, turn into a fine baseball player. So that's um, – I knew it was it was time to go, and you know, I, my brother, you know, he knows baseball, but he doesn't really know the progress of how you grow as a player and when you're ready. My brother would say that I was ready when I was 13 years old, and you know, you, and I was done by the time I was 25, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's great to know the insight of what everybody goes through because uh I know these young baseball players out there now if they're not ready and baseball is a failure sport they get down on themselves and we need to teach them to learn how to pick yourself up not just for baseball but also for life because there's going to be a lot of times you get knocked down and you know you judge it a guy by his character, you know, if you can get back up and fight and continue to be a strong person, I mean, that's number one. Baseball's the toughest sport out there and full of failures and it's full of other guys trying to uh, take your job and trying to uh, get you out, so to say, and be better than you so they can take care of their families as well. So you play in Kansas City. Uh, from 95 to 2000. 2000, you lead the league in stolen bases. Uh, you get traded in a three-way trade. And this is the first time I kind of got to see, because I had heard about Johnny Damon through my father, who, who talked about you and glowed about you, I remember, when you were coming up as a young kid. Uh, but you got, you got traded, and you went to the A's for the 2001 season. And what a you know that was a time for the American League West when we were kind of the powerhouse and it was us and yep. it was the Mariners and it was the A's and it was uh, you know the Angels at the time and those were some fun years you know it happened to be two thousand one you know you remember our Mariner team we won one hundred and sixteen games I mean the A's yeah. had an un- unbelievable year I think you guys won like a hundred and four games. And you finished out, you know, you finished 12 games out of the division lead. Uh, Just kind of a magical year for us. I I don't know if we'll ever see that again. And we didn't end up uh, finishing the deal, which was too bad. But what do you think about that one year? And and we had a buddy of yours on the podcast uh, about a month ago in Jason Giambi. And and what a great player uh, uh, he was. And, And I talked about those years with him. I said, you know, when I was on the Mariners, we would look over at you guys because we seemed like we play you like every other week. And it seemed like, you know, we had a bunch of, we had the John Olerudes of the world and, and the Edgar Martinez's and, you know, the veteran kind of <laughs> almost father figures, Dan Wilson. And, and uh, we had a ton of good guys, but I'd look at the Oakland A's and you guys look like a frat house. I'm like, these are a bunch of kids out there just having a hell of a time. And 
a really good team. Tell me about that Oakland year a little bit. And, uh, you know, Jason was kind of the captain of that squad. But uh, those were some fun times. We had a lot of battles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Giambi, great player, great teammate, better teammate. And we had a young team. I mean, you have Hudson, Mulder, and Zito as your three starting pitchers. Like, they were probably the top three of ten in the league at the time. And then our other guys, Eric Hill just ended up going 8-0. And then uh, we had Corey Lytle, who had just an amazing year as well. And we started off super slow that year. And you guys may have been up 20 games at one time. I mean, winning 116 games, that's really, really hard to do. And we won 102, and we looked at our standings of going to the playoffs, and the Yankees won the American League East with 87 wins, and we're going, all right, hopefully they have no chance against us, and we went up two games to nothing against them because we would have loved to have played you for the 25th time that year of going to uh, (laughs) um, the playoffs. And, I mean, there was magic there. I mean, obviously we know what happened in 2001. You feel proud that, the Yankees got to go and um, to the playoffs, but when it's your team, you are absolutely upset. And both of us felt like we had a better team. Just things didn't work out for us that year. But, uh, yeah, we were a young team. And, I mean, the payroll was low. And that team was able to stay together for a while. But, I mean, that's when Moneyball came into play. And, Let's try to get a player to replace, say, a veteran like me. I mean, they let me go the next year, and they also knew I wanted to get back to the uh, East Coast, um, closer to Florida. But Moneyball showed up, and now there's three good players who can play a total of eight positions, um, taking over for a guy who may be costing your team some money. So uh, Moneyball came and to play sabermetrics, and the game has really never been the same. I mean, it's not really judging a player's uh, heart nowadays, but then again, they can find a way to do that, I'm sure, if they really wanted to. But, uh, yeah, the game has changed since those days. Some for the better, some for, like like I said, the veteran players. They're not, it's turning into Premier League soccer because uh, – it's definitely going to be a younger game. And you said these guys are coming up at 19, 20 years old again, and it's not rare. So players are going to get in, get out at a much younger age. And, you know, I'm not against it. I think the talent level will show that it could be a good move, but definitely don't like the uh, extra inning rules though, Booney. I mean, Oh, it's like it's like twelve year old twelve year old travel ball. It's like why don't we just put an invisible runner on second, like we did when we play wiffle ball in the backyard? It's absolutely ridiculous, and, and I don't understand at the big league level. I'm against these seven inning double headers. They're ridiculous. This is the big leagues. That's something right. you do. That's something you do in the minor leagues when you're developing. Once you get to the big leagues yes. and and. This is Major League Baseball. You're, you know, 
this is something probably the most coveted record book in all of sports that everybody puts the most credibility in is that MLB record book. Well, yes. now all of a sudden you got seven inning, you know, you got seven inning uh, double headers and you got a runner on second with no outs to start the game. Like there's another travel ball team waiting, waiting in the tunnel. Then they need the field. It's like, why don't we just play the extra innings like we always have? You know, I think, I think you're right. I think you touched on a good point. Some things are, are an improvement. Life goes on. You know, we evolve as a, as a human race. Sports is going to evolve. You're going you're gonna to learn things. You're, the technology is going to get greater and greater. You're going to have more at, at your fingertips. I think there's a lot of positive things to it. But baseball is baseball. And it's apple pie and it's Chevrolet for a reason. Yeah. And it's right. standing the test of time because we don't make huge changes. Yeah, you tweak things here and there. Now I hear about a, you know, developing something or trying something at the A ball level, a sixty-one foot mound. Are you kidding me? It's like you're <laughs> you're going to tell a big leaguer right now that's thirty years old that's you know since right. he could since he could play the mound's been sixty foot six inch. Oh yeah, just make this adjustment. We're going to move the box up. I mean, th- these things to me are just absurd, and I think. You know, I, I like the instant replay for the home run. Is it fair or is, is it foul? Get that play right at the end yep. of the game on that double play, bang, bang, that, that sends right. the right team to the next round of the playoffs. I agree with that. But when you start messing with, uh, I don't know, I just think don't yeah, mess with, with too much. Baseball is baseball. Keep it as pure as you can and, and just – kind of move on with society as we evolve as a, as a, as a nation. Yeah. Evolve with it, but not too much. Anyway, I, I, I could talk for hours about this, but, but we don't have. Time. Oh yeah. It's, uh, well, your we brother's dealing with all this stuff now. And I mean, we have to agree. This has got to be tough on players traveling um, fans, not being in the stands. I mean, your team in Seattle, I mean, you lived for your fans. Imagine if they weren't there um, cheering you on. It feels like a spring training game or even a, a B-field game or field number two game. And they have to let the fans in the stands because I know playing in Boston and in New York and obviously everywhere else, but those two places, the fans got you going. And if you weren't performing, they would let you know and they would say, you better get your butt going or these boos are going to continue. And I love that. It got me going. And, yeah, come on. Let's get the fans going again. You got to be playing for the Rangers. Then you got a ton of fans in the stands. And and you're in last place. But at least you can go to the game. (laughs) Are they in last place right now? Huh? No, I, I'm just saying. I just, I just, I look at that division, and, and that's where I picked them to finish. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I haven't, well, I haven't been following. Yeah, well, the Tampa Bay Rays are at max capacity, and I think they're kind of still used to what what's been showing up. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've been playing with the with the twenty uh, percent rule for a lot of years now. And it's too bad, yeah, too. That, that raised team yeah, is it's too bad. They're good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, 02, you signed a four-year deal with the Red Sox. 
and you spend some time there. Oh, four. And, and I want to talk about this. You, you guys win the first world series and still, and I've talked to a lot of people about it on the boom podcast. It's, it's one of the most impressive feats in sports I've ever seen. You guys are down. Oh, three to the Yankees. You come back and you win. There's a couple things in sports that I've seen in my life. I think in the, in the mid teens, like 2014 or, or 2015, I forget which year it was. Madison Bumgardner's performance in the postseason is something I've never seen before by a starting pitcher. He's coming back on one day's rest. He's pitching shutouts, MVP. That's one of the most impressive. But I've got to say, being down, because I know how tough it is when you're down uh, three games in any series to anybody, let alone, I mean, that was the absolute height of that Yankee-Red Sox rivalry. And to come back in that situation and win four straight, uh, tell me about, just tell me about that year and and how that all went down. And did you believe you were going to do it? Wow. No, we didn't believe we were going to do it. I mean, how many times do the Yankees lose four games in a row ever, let alone that year or in the past five years prior to that? These guys were on fire, and we were, yeah, struggling. And we had some guys step up to get us going, and then things all changed. And, you know, it was absolutely amazing. And Big Poppy hit everything, got all the clutch hits. We had Schilling coming out with his bloody sock after a little surgery he had. Derek Lowe, I mean, everybody on our team. I mean, you can't really pinpoint to one player except for Big Poppy on why we, you know, won. It was everybody. And, yeah, amazing year. Something we'll never forget. And we made so many people happy. And the stories live on and on forever. And it does not get old. You hear stories of how people will go to the grave sites of their fallen family member and just talk about the Red Sox winning. Totally unbelievable. How did you enjoy your time in, in uh, Boston? Loved it. It was so great. Wanted it to continue for many, many more years, but the business side of this game and a young kid named Jacoby Ellsbury on his way. It kind of makes you uh, not necessarily expendable, but your time is forever shrinking in anything you do. And I'm sure they wanted me for one, maybe two years. I mean, a center fielder, you start losing a step. Unfortunately, not for me. I mean, still running fast and playing soccer and uh, still a beast out there. But, yeah, your time <laughs> dwindles. And Ellsbury's time was coming. So it was time to look elsewhere 
did not think it was going to be the Yankees, but I also knew baseball was going to remain important every single day. You have to show up and try to be the man. And if it's not Boston, New York definitely has the atmosphere and everything that I love about this game. And here we go. On to the Bronx. And before we get to the Bronx, I got to just give me this real quick. Give me the Manny Relay mm-hmm. story. It's the best. It's one oh, of the boy. funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay. So the Manny Relay <laughs> story. All right. Long drive to center field by David Newhouse. You know, I'm going up and that wall and playing center field in Fenway is the toughest place to play center field anywhere. So I go up and, you know, ball hits off the wall. Manny should be backing me up at this time, but uh, Manny's kind of just chilling. So (laughs) I get to the ball, pick it up, throwing it to Bill Miller. You know, it probably would have been a one or two hopper. Okay, I know I don't have the strongest arm in the world. And all of a sudden, Manny Ramirez dives for the first time the whole year to catch the ball. What was he doing? I don't know. Maybe making one of the biggest bloopers of all time. Maybe he knew that was happening, but, uh, you know, I'm just glad we were able to get through that. We (laughs) left each other and we were able to win the world series that year. So, we had to deal with some struggles, and that was definitely one of the struggles we had to overcome. But, yeah, like I said, it would have only been a triple if Manny did not dive. <laughs> and it was – it was oh, Manny, he was a beauty. I mean, such an unbelievable hitter. One of the best, one of the best yeah. right-handed hitters of, of our time, obviously. Yeah. But, but yeah. when we come into play, he's always going to do something. You know, what's he going to do? And sometimes you're going, I'm glad he's not my teammate. And then when he's going deep, to, hitting two, three-run bombs in the game, going, yeah, I wish he was my teammate. But behind-the-scenes stuff with that, I mean, what do you say to a teammate when, after something like that when you're running into the dugout? Hey, nice cutoff, Manny. Or, or does he say anything to you? I haven't been around him that yeah. much. You know, I'd see him when he got to second base. Hey, Booney, what's going on? Hey, Manny, what's going on, man? Right. That's about my, right. my – about the – you know, that's about the extent of my interactions with him. But I couldn't imagine on a daily basis, like Manny, over here, over here. Yeah, I know you're you're gonna you're gonna hit. Yeah, well they made a pitching change afterwards and Trot Nixon strolls over the center field to meet with me and he's got his glove up a uh, um, against his mouth, he goes he started laughing, he goes, What <laughs> what in the heck? Just happened. <laughs> it's and, something that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah. No, and I was obviously upset, but I was like, "Yeah, you're right. This is a funny moment." But unfortunately, they just got four runs against Pedro. And how would it look if we're laughing right now on something that Manny just did? <laughs> and so I remember that moment. Um, more so than many others, Trot Nixon coming over and just laughing into his glove. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. So as, as you were mentioned, it was time to move on. 
Ellsbury was coming in, young player. That happened. You you mentioned it earlier in Kansas City when you were coming up. Uh, Dad had to release guys like Vince Coleman. You weren't getting released, but the writing was kind of on the wall. They were gonna. They had a young guy coming up. weren't gonna have to pay him much. Uh, you were moving on. Uh, and the unthinkable from from a fan's perspective, you go from Red Sox Nation to the Yankees. And this, I'll tell you, the rest of us playing you guys all these years, as much as we wanted to beat your ass, whether you were the Red Sox or the Yankees, a little part of us was always envious because every Sunday night baseball was the Yankees and the Red Sox. And and the rest of us out there, even on our great years, go, what about us? But it was such a cool rivalry. And and the thing is, it's only a train trip away. It's not like you're going far. And and the and the fan bases are so close, you know, as far as the map goes. You're they're right there in the same part of the country. I, I, pr- maybe arguably the greatest rivalry in sports, and especially in those early two thousand years. You know, I even as a player, you know, as players. Once we're done with our game, and, and especially as veteran players, it's not like we're going home to watch the other teams play. But I think that Yankee Boston had something special about it where, where players from the other team were kind of interested. Hey, did you see the see Boston Yankees tonight? It, it was a really cool time. And all of a sudden, you're going to the, 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 the enemy. And I know how intense those fans are. And you were talking about it earlier about being in Boston and being in a full house and how intense they are. And you love that. Oh, I love it too. You know, I used to love going to, I didn't like Fenway so much because I didn't want to think about that wall. My, my bread and butter was hitting the ball the other way. But if I saw that short porch, you know, I might get a little pull happy for that series, but I loved going to the Bronx. It's like when I take the field there, it's like you could close your eyes and you knew you were somewhere special. You, you didn't even have to yep. tell me where I was. You just kind of, there was something about it. And you know what I'm talking about. People have to witness it. You can't tell them what it is. They have to witness it. But there's certain stadiums out there that you just know where you're at. Yankee Stadium being one of them. So uh, tell me about those Yankee years and, and that first trip back to Boston after being a world champion in Boston. Yeah, those Yankee years, I was actually, like, when I signed with them, I was like, wow, what what just happened? Like, I was a fan favorite in Boston, and how could they just let me go? And I understand it's a business. Boston was my third team, so I knew how that stuff works. No one ever leaves Boston happy, and that's very unfortunate. And... The media, I felt, was a lot tougher in Boston because more people or the percentage of people paid more attention. I would say everybody invited us into their kitchens um, for dinner every single night. I mean, probably 70%, 80% of people are paying attention to what the Red Sox are doing. In New York, yeah, there's a number of more people but the percentage is lower, so you may come across one of five, one of four people and who really pay attention to what's going on. There's so many sports, hockey teams, football teams, baseball teams, and yeah, it was a a little bit of a shock for me to go 
but I, I knew baseball was important. And I also knew that I wanted to prove a point that I had a lot more to give to this game. And I definitely could have helped the Red Sox win a couple more World Series. And, you know, obviously those guys know what they're doing. Got the young buck coming in. We're going to bolster our pitching staff. And so the first year I was with the Yankees, Boston had some injuries and they ended up finishing fourth in the division, which I was happy as can be because I'm like, yeah, I showed you. You know, they went out, signed a couple of players. The next year, I didn't have a good year. Those guys win the World Series again. And obviously, you never want to see your team win a World Series once you leave. That's just, I don't know. I'm not happy about that. But they did. They deserved it. And, yeah, it was a uh, tough go-round. But you know what? You got to play the game, and we kept getting after it. And uh, fortunately enough, we spent some money in 2009. So uh, my move to Pinstripes was definitely uh, well worth it. That first trip back to Boston, you get booed or cheered? Both. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mostly booed, but Britt, you know, you would rather have the entire stadium boo you instead of one or two people from different areas. I mean, right. I know you right. played second base, so they normally target the first baseman, third baseman, and all the outfielders. Like, And I'm sure you got a number of boos. But playing center field at Boston, being a Yankee, yeah, that was uh, – yeah, it was horrible. But – uh that's all right. I mean, we're baseball players. They don't boo nobody, so that's right. I am just good. I was just going to say that. Yeah, Reggie Jackson said it. They don't boo nobody. So I, I actually, I, I actually welcomed it. You know, I, I started yeah. to worry. You know, I knew I was having some some tough years throughout my career if I get booed at home. But when you went on the road, right. the louder the boos usually meant the better you were doing. And yeah. You know, so so it didn't affect you. It kind of gave you a little boost when when you thought they're so worried about me. They want to boo me so loud. I must be doing something pretty special. So you take it almost as a compliment versus, uh, you know, versus a negative. So, you know, and, and probably yeah. your time there, you were a fan favorite in Boston. And I take it as they kind of like. Screw you for leaving, but we really wish we still had you here. And that's kind of got to be a good feeling, too, coming back home. Well, yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately, in Boston, they're booing you when you're walking back to your hotel room. (laughs) They're booing you when you're at dinner. So it's not just at the ballpark. It's everywhere you go where you're kind of like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. Even when I went on the road, you know, there's always Boston fans, and you know them. They always wear their hat to a Angel Mariner game, you know. Okay, yeah. I'm a Boston fan. And they would, yeah, they would still be like, I can't believe you went to New York, and I, the money should not matter. And, I mean, I really felt bad about leaving, but I was like, guys, 
there really was nothing for me to do except go play for a team that had no energy and had no chance to win. Or you can join the tradition and to be a part of those great center fillers of the Yankees and, or yeah, go nowhere. And I wanted to be a part of that tradition. Like I said, I'm glad we won in 2009 because um, I would not be happy to this day if the Red Sox won and we did not after that move. So, oh, thank God. I'm patting myself on the back right now. Well, I'll tell you, too many people, there's not too many people out there that could say they want to uh, ring with the with the Red Sox and the Yankees. You got, he had to get a haircut. That might have been the, the only downfall of the, that, that trade or that, that free agent signing is. You went to, yeah, you, went to that's okay. you, you were rocking. Yeah, you were rocking. You had the flow going. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you got to be little schoolboy Johnny now. You're in New York. But, yeah, well, had- when I joined Boston, I had the uh, schoolboy Johnny working. And it was that, 2004 year I had a concussion and during the off season I I was beat up I couldn't move so I was laying in bed not doing anything and growing my hair out and it became legendary in Boston and I brought it back now I mean this uh, pandemic and everything I was like there's really not much I could do so I'm my hair is actually longer now there might be a little more gray in it than back in 2004. Like I had some highlights and all that good stuff, but, you know, still looking fly, still looking good. <laughs> all right. So in, in 10, uh, and, and you end up the, the last three years of your career, you end up doing one year deals. You go to the Tigers, uh, you go to the Rays and, and you finish your last year uh, with the Indians. And, and I was reading up, before we did this Boone podcast. And, and I know you were pretty reluctant to walk away from the game. Uh, there was something in you saying, ah, I still got some more to give. And, and what was that like when, when you didn't get the offers or the, or the opportunity wasn't there? Like probably, like we all do, we all think it's going to be there forever. Uh, what was that like right. for you in the years after 2012? Um, well, it was very tough because I knew I was still a better hitter than 70, 80% of the league. I mean, I could still run, I could still do still bases. And I had a really good year in Tampa Bay and we went to the playoffs and I was a huge contributor to that team. Well, I did not get a offer from a team until around April 20th when they asked if I could meet the team in Chicago come May 1st, and this was Cleveland. I did get a little offer from the Braves in, like, February sometime, but my playing time would depend on if Chipper Jones could play or not. So I'm not going to wish for a guy to not be able to play He's legendary. He's Atlanta Braves folklore. So I really didn't want to sign in that hopes. And then Cleveland called me saying that I won't be there too long. Grady Sizemore is going to be healthy. And then hopefully you can sign with another team. So I was like, hey, why not? I'm coming off the golf course, enjoying myself, 
10 weeks late for the season. You know, you miss spring training the first month. You're not supposed to be good. And it took me a hundred at bats to finally get rolling. And then by that time it was too late for the Indians. It was, you know, too late for me. I mean, my first hundred at bats, I was like 17 for a hundred. My next hundred, I was like 33 for a hundred. So I was getting there, but nothing looked great. So it was a easy release. I ended up playing defensive replacement at my age in Kansas city and you know, nobody else called very difficult. But like I said, I thought I could still hit. I just needed some time to get the hands working and remember all the dang pitches these guys threw and the game just gets harder as well. And I felt like it was a great time. My now eight year old twins were just born, got to spend much more of their childhood together. And, you know, those kids definitely appreciate the fact that I was home all the time. So I, I was okay with it. I just wasn't ready at the time. All right. All the, all the years you played, all the great players you, you played with, you played against best player, not named Barry Bonds, because that's usually the answer for everybody <laughs> yeah. of our generation. We try to tell everybody. No one's even close. So take Bonds out right. of the equation. Best player you ever played with or against? Best player I played with. I mean, we're, there's so many things you can say. Best clutch hitter, best hitter, best talent. I mean, Carlos Beltran had a lot of talent. He he learned more and more about the game as he was brought to the big leagues and uh, um, learned how to share his wisdom. So the talent was there. And he figured it out after, you know, years of learning. And every player does that. Um, best, I mean, there's many great pitching performances, which we hate pitchers and all that. Like <laughs> we don't hate them. We like it when they win for us. But, um, yeah, Beltron had some talent. Manny was great hitter. But, I, I, I mean, great, great hitter. Miguel Cabrera was the best one season that I played with Detroit, the best hitter. I mean, this guy – his batting practices were amazing. He hit a home run out to right field and center, then left and center, then right and center, then left. And the guy just, you know, was absolutely a great hitter, big poppy, best clutch hitter, postseason hitter that I've seen. And like Derek Jeter, never gave up in a bat. You know, he wanted every single at bat. Like late in the game, if we're losing or winning by a lot, I was always like, yeah, I'll take a couple of innings off. And Derek Jeter never wanted a moment off. So I thought that was absolutely incredible. And yeah, there's so much talent out there, so much talent in our day as well. And, you know, the game, you know, that's, 
let's continue to have it grow and have some special moments like uh, 2004 championship and, you know, New York, it's been a long time. So hopefully they can continue to dominate. But yeah, there's so much talent out there and so many players um, switching teams like back then and even more so today. So it's uh, today's baseball, it's so much easier for me to root for the uh, um, name on the back of the jersey instead of a certain team. But obviously I'm going to be rooting for your brother and the Yankees. We got it. We got to root for Uncle Aaron. All right, this yeah, is what absolutely. I this is what I didn't get to early in the early in the round. We, you know, I I did mention it in the open, but we talked about the Celebrity Apprentice and the Dance with the Stars. All right, I recently and I've never watched this show before. The Below Deck. Okay, so now I'm <laughs> oh, watching it. You know, it's it's like I'm up early in the morning. It's like six thirty in the morning. I'm flipping around. I'm like, what's this stupid show? So I start watching it, and all of a sudden. Then me and you talk, and we're going to have Johnny Damon on the program. And I'm like, he was on Below Deck. So I found yours. Tell me about <laughs> Below Deck. Because it's one of those shows, it's almost like we were kids and we watched Saved by the Bell. And we didn't know why we watched <laughs> it, but we kept watching it. And it, it, it's like when a when that Stallone movie, Cobra, comes on. You don't know why you watch it, but you just keep watching it. So, so I'm watching oh, this man. Below Deck. I'm watching Below Deck like at 6.30 in the morning. Next thing I know, I've rattled off like seven episodes, and now I'm into it, like yelling at the screen, hey, don't say that to him. That guy needs to be fired. Okay, you were on the show. Uh, how much was it just, like you said, it, Hollywood's a lot of hurry up and wait. Was that all staged, or did they let you kind of be natural a little bit? Yeah, that they, was the uh, actually really let us be natural, and we had a great time. I mean, obviously, I love hot food, and I know owning a boat in the past, obviously not of that size, it's really tough to serve hot food because you're dealing with wind. So that was my biggest thing, and it's mostly about the crew, but unfortunately, they made it about us, and you know, they control your voices on a number of things. Like when I got stung by a jellyfish and my wife, Michelle, asked me who would I like to urinate on me. I told her, obviously, you or me and not to <laughs> the person they made it look like. And then later on, we don't have mics on and I'm like laying on her belly, you know, she... Gave me six beautiful kids. And then they also said, I want you to do the same thing on me. And I was like, I don't even have a mic on at that time. So a few things get part of TV shows. And yes, I was very tired at the end of the second time. I mean, 16 hours of going it was her last night. I wanted to go to sleep, and it looked like I was, uh, yeah. Well, did you get a free trip? So, was it a free, was it, was it a free yes. trip? Do you have to pay for it? Um, you do have to pay for it. They give you a discounted rate, um, so you agree to go on the show, and you just have your three other couples, you know, pay to go with you, and it makes it a very cool trip. 
because the opportunities to go on those big yachts, I mean, few and far between. And I would definitely recommend it to anyone if they had the opportunity or reach out to Bravo and say you would like to do it. We had a great time. Hopefully we can go back and do it again. And hopefully the next time we'll bring our kids and um, show everybody how big they've grown over the years. And um, yeah, so that was a great show. Um, You forgot to mention that one show, Tanked that we were on when we uh, um, had the gender reveal party that my wife was finally pregnant with a boy. So that was a uh, very fun show with the guys. You're making your rounds. I can't keep up with you, Johnny. Yeah, I know. You got too many shows to your credit. All right. uh, Your sports drink, (laughs) a game. Tell me all about it. Tell the Boone podcast all about it. Yeah, my childhood friend of mine created the drink back in 2012 because a lot of athletes, mostly football players in the Orlando area, were getting very dehydrated and many dying. We wanted to create a drink that was going to be the absolute best for everybody. It's got the best name as well, A-game. You got to bring your A-game every single moment of the day when we played baseball when you do your show if you're a parent teacher anybody you should always bring your a game bring it to life every moment you can and you won't have disappointment ever as long as you bring your a game and we get our sugars from natural honey um hydration from sea salt and we just signed with a icelandic water company so we are going to be very clean for everybody out there. Go to drinkagame.com, also at drinkagame on Instagram, and it's good. It's really good. It's on fire. I was just at a uh, football camp a week ago, and everyone kept digging in, and I had to fill up these coolers every 10 minutes, and it's great. And you can get it on Amazon right now, and Hopefully, real soon, we'll be back in the stores in the Northeast. We're working with a few um, places around the globe. And try it out. It's fire. Absolutely. Very cool. A-game. All right, Johnny. uh, What we do at the end of the Boone podcast is we have the voice of the Boone podcast, Dan Levy. Dan Levy, come back for one more question for Johnny Damon. Danny. Hi, Brett. Hi, Johnny. This question comes from Ty in Somerset, Massachusetts. Johnny, when fans walk up to you, what is the most common thing they want to talk to you about? The Red Sox or the Yankees? Well, you kind of know who's in the room. So Yankee fans, obviously, about the double steal. Red Sox fans, obviously, about the Grand Slam and reversing the curse and i love it you know i they know that i'm approachable and they also don't know that i'm actually a really big guy i mean being a leadoff hitter they're thinking i'm each row size and you know i'm 6'2 220 and 
people are always shocked with my size. So they talk about both teams. Some other teams I played for, some shows, but my size is always something that they question if it's really Johnny F and Damon. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. People are always very confused when they see how big I am, too. All right, Johnny Damon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. We appreciate it. All my best to everybody out there. Thank you for having me, Dan and Brett. And we got to get your brother's Yankees going. At least we need to have a strong finish to this uh, American League East like we always do. You got it, Johnny. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Storied, great, unbelievable career. And and I appreciate you coming on the show. Y'all have a great night. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound? That means it is time to dip our hands into the Brett Boone mailbag, shall we? Let's do it, Danny. All right, let's do it. All right, Brett, this one comes from Art in San Pedro, and he wants to know, Brett, did anyone ever take you out at second base when you were trying to turn a double play? A lot of guys tried, Art. A lot of guys tried. Now, it was a, uh, you know, it's before the rule change, so, you know, that's that's. That was guys' jobs, is to get you, take you out. Uh, Kurt Gibson came at me the hardest. Uh, Will Clark tried to get me. But if you're technically sound turning a double play and and you do everything right, uh, they can't get you. What I'm going to say is they can't hurt you Uh, because I always had my feet up in the air. So the worst thing that's going to happen to me is I'm going to get flipped. But the problem is, is bobbling the ball. When you bobble the ball and your and your legs stay anchored to the ground, that's where the injuries happen. They slide in, and, and when your spike is anchored, that's where you can break an ankle, break a leg. So uh, I was fortunate enough to avoid that. Like I said, a lot of guys tried. Nobody could get me. Well, all right, back into the mailbag we go, and this one comes from Roger in St. Pete, Florida. Brett, what exactly do the infielders say to a pitcher when you call a timeout and go to the mound? I've always wanted to know that, too. I could be a lot of things. It doesn't matter. I could I could be – I might go there just to settle him down a little bit, give him a chance to breathe, say something stupid, talk about dinner that night. Uh, it could be a – it could be a – plethora of things. It could be anything on the map. Most of the time, I was just going out there to buy some time and go, hey, how we doing out here? Well, I, you know, the answers range. They could be, I suck right now. Well, stop sucking. Let's go. And by the way, I need to do this because I got, I got to get out of here by 1045. So let's go. So usually it's just kind of a, a light <laughs> moment. Um, or it, it could be something serious like, Hey, I think this guy might be picking our pitches from second base or where are you going to pitch this guy? I want to favor one side or the other. So it could be a serious conversation or it could be just me going out there to buy time. Ever you going out to me like, Hey dude, you totally skipped out on that bill, man. You owe me like 50 bucks. Without a doubt. <laughs> something stupid. I, I was good for something stupid. That's my guy, Brett. And that's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. 
My name is Dan Levy, and I am the technical director, producer, as well as the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer duties is all handled by Ridge Herrera. Digital content gets worked on by Liz Landry. And remember, please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and all those who love the game of baseball or sports in general. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Moon Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks again for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.